Hey, if you're new with us this morning, welcome. Glad you're with us. My name's Kevin. I'm your lead pastor. And this, this morning we get a chance to start a, a brand new book, a, a letter actually, uh, that is written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. And Paul writes four letters to individual people, and this young pastor, Timothy, he gets two of them. And the point of these letters is to give Timothy some house rules. So you have your Bible with you this morning. I hope you do. Turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. If you're new to your Bible and you're not sure where to go, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can usually find that. Go right. Keep going right. You'll hit uh, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. Keep going right. You're getting warmer. You're right there, and you'll find the book of 1 Timothy. It's a relatively small book, and as you turn there, I want you to really think about for a second your house rules. Do you know what I mean by house rules? Uh, what are some of the things in your home that everybody who lives in your home must abide by? So whether you have a roommate or whether you're married with no kids, maybe you're divorced with kids, maybe you are empty nesters and anywhere and everywhere, everybody has house rules. And so my thought is, what are they? So does anybody have a house rule that you're willing to share? You're allowed to shout out in church, Jesus will be okay. Um, turn off the lights, amen. What else we got? No cursing, put the lid down, okay. We got to, oh, one of my family rules was um, keep your hands and feet. Good, you have the same house rule, right? And so as I was thinking through this series, I thought, what are some house rules that maybe every house should kind of have? And these are just in my opinion, but one of the first ones I thought was being honest is always your best option. Right? Being honest is always your best. There are other options, but your best option is being honest. Number two, man or woman, girl or boy, you are expected to keep your word. House rule, everyone in the house. Third, when someone is speaking, they have the floor. Can't tell you how many times in, pre, in premarital counseling and in postmarital counseling, people don't have this house rule in place. Four, if you would like privileges, you will need to fulfill your responsibilities. That's how it works for everybody. Fifth, if you want to borrow something, you'll need to ask and not just take it. Or how about when you borrow something, you'll need to return it as you found it and to where you found it. Or maybe the one that was said in my house, maybe the most is, there is no maid who lives here. <laughs> if you make a mess, Clean it up. If you drop it, pick it up. Uh, the next one, when you take something out, put it back. And if you take the last of something, tell the person who needs to know. <laughs> so last service, everyone was like, amen to that one. Apparently that's a big problem in, in, in that service. The next one was in my house, especially with my son. If you break something, you will be involved in the fixing or the replacing process. So just know that right now. And finally, electronics are a privilege, not a right. And that's very confusing right now in lots of homes. But see, house rules help to create structure. And these rules work best when there is consistency, when there is predictability, and when there is follow-through for everyone. 
So in a home, house rules help to make sure everybody in the home knows which behaviors are okay and which behaviors are not okay. And house rules apply to everyone in the house, parents included. Well, in this series, Paul is going to be giving this young pastor named Timothy a set of house rules for the church. This church is our house. And if you want a gospel-centered, Christ-honoring church, these need to be the house rules as well. And much like our homes, you may or may not like the rules, especially if you did not make them. But these rules are given by God for our good. And that's hard. That's hard when someone else makes the rules for us. We don't always like that. And so let's get started. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, this is what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so right off the bat, the first question we have to ask is, who the heck is Paul? Because you don't get to claim apostleship. You don't get to say that you write with apostolic authority. You don't get to tell us what we have to do in our house, in our church. You don't get to make the rules without us knowing who you think you are. Because we need to know that. Knowing who Paul was and knowing who Paul is is going to be very significant in us understanding and accepting this letter. Because what we're about to read in this letter is going to be some very, very difficult and culturally unpopular things. And so to understand who he is, we have to go back a little bit. And so like in most series openers, you're going to be moving around a little bit. So now you can leave 1 Timothy and you're going to head over to the book of Acts. So uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right up there, right after that, you got Acts. So it's a pretty big book, shouldn't be too hard to find. Acts chapter 4 is where I want you to go. Because over the next few minutes, we're going to do a relatively quick, I, you saw the parking lot, so relative is an interesting word, a biography about this man by the name of Paul. That's the journey we're going to take as we go through the book of Acts. So as you're turning to Acts chapter 4, during the time of Jesus and, and during the time of the writing of the New Testament, there were two primary rabbinic schools that taught rabbis. Okay, there was a school of Hillel. Can you say Hillel for me? Good. And the other school was the school of Shammai. Can you say Shammai? Good. So you've got the school of Hillel and you've got the school of Shammai. Now, these two schools influenced all of the backdrop of religious history during this time. They had some similarities, sure, but they had quite a few differences. The school of Hillel uh, tended to be a little bit more lenient. When I say lenient, please don't hear me say liberal. That's not what I said. Think a little more laid back. If you were with the school of Shammai... This school was a little bit more strict, a little bit more rigorous. You might call them legalistic. If you are familiar with the biblical concept of a zealot, the zealots were probably most closely associated with the school of Shammai. 
Now, during the life of Christ, up until the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the school of Shammai ran the show. They were the dominating voice in the area. So the backdrop religiously of the Jewish culture in the first century was a little bit more zealous, a little bit more obedience-driven, a little bit more, hey, let's revolt against Rome. Let's kick out the oppressor, let's be obedient to God, and let's have freedom both politically and religiously, even if we have to stab them, right? Even if it takes a sword, we're going to do this. Now, that all fell apart at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and so the school of Shammai slowly began to decline, and the school of Hillel took over. And so for the next 400 years, the school of Hillel became the dominating rabbinic voice. Now the reason that's significant is this guy Hillel and his more lenient interpretation is not mentioned in our Bibles. But one of his disciples is. And to be clear, Hillel and Shammai were contemporaries to Jesus. They were alive when Jesus was alive. So these aren't like ancient rabbinic schools. Don't think that. They grew in prominence about the same time as Jesus, which is why Jesus is continually asked the question, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you say these things? What they were asking Jesus is, to which school and their interpretation do you subscribe? Do you align with? And so while Hillel is not mentioned in the Bible, one of his disciples is. We're going to talk about him in a few minutes, but he's found in Acts chapter 5, verse 34, and his name is Gamaliel. That's his name, Gamaliel. Now for context, and so that we know what's happening here, Jesus has lived, Jesus has been crucified, buried, and Jesus has risen. Last week, we looked at the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. Remember, he gave us the Great Commission. And now as the book of Acts opens to tell us what comes next, right away in Acts chapter 1, Jesus looks at the disciples and says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Not you might be, or you could be. You will be my witnesses. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and you're going to be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And so like a brush fire in the forest, that's exactly what happens. So the movement of Jesus begins. And if you think about it, the movement of Jesus starts with Jesus, of course. And then as you kind of go through the Gospels, 12 dudes get picked up. And so now we've got 13 of them kind of rolling around. Well, by the time you get to Acts chapter 1, we know there are 120 followers of Jesus in the upper room and are filled with the Holy Spirit. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, now we've got 3,000 believers now associated with Jesus. In fact, Acts chapter 2, verse 47 says, the Lord adds to their number every single day those who are being saved. Every day, people are coming to Christ. By the time you get to Acts chapter 4, 
There are 5,000 people associated with the movement that Jesus started. My point is, it's not just a brush fire geographically, it's a brush fire numerically. I mean, could you imagine if in the next year we grew by 5,000 people here? Oh gosh, you're right. <laughs> I just got really tired thinking about that. That's sort of what's going on here. And so if you were a religious scholar of the day, and it really doesn't matter which rabbinic school you're a part of, if you are a religious scholar and in walks a Jewish rabbi named Jesus, who comes from the backwoods someplace in Galilee, who studied under nobody you've ever known, no one you've ever heard of, you can't even figure out where his authority came from, and he has claimed to be the Messiah, and now in a very, very short amount of time, he's got like 5,000 plus people following him, that would have bothered you a little bit. You'd have been a little irritated about what's going on, because he didn't fit your paradigm. And that's sort of what's happening here. Because in Acts chapter 4, we see that Peter and John are arrested by the religious leaders. In verse 13, these religious leaders recognized that these uneducated country bumpkins from Galilee had been with Jesus. And I thought, what a great insult. Like, I would love that. I would, wouldn't that be an amazing insult today that it doesn't matter what school you went to, it doesn't matter uh, what job you have, it doesn't matter how smart you are, how many cars are in your garage, has no, doesn't matter about your ethnicity, but that the way you live is so amazingly different that people just knew you spend time with Jesus. I'll take that insult all day. Please insult me like that more. You know, I thought, what a great insult. Well, these religious leaders, they grab Peter and John, and they tell them to stop speaking the name of Jesus. And I love their response, which is found in verse 19 of Acts chapter 4. It says, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And so the tension here is rising. You've got the disciples on one side. You've got these religious leaders from these two rabbinic schools on the other side. And they're butting heads. And they don't know what to do with Jesus and his followers. And so when they kill Jesus, they think, okay, we're good. We killed Jesus. It's all going to be done now. But then, here comes all these people that are responding to the gospel of Jesus. Young and old, male and female, aristocrat and shepherd, rich or poor, anyone and everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are all coming to faith in Christ, and this is causing incredible division within the rabbinic schools. And so what do they do? Well, the school of Shammai thought, look, just cut the head off the snake and you kill the movement. So once this snake, Jesus, is gone, this whole thing should just go away. And if it doesn't, we just need to squash this by whatever means is necessary. So if we need to arrest the leaders, if we need to beat them, if we need to kill them, whatever we need to do, we'll do it. That's the backdrop for Acts chapter 5. 
And so in Acts chapter 5, verse 18, they, it says they begin to arrest everybody. It says in verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. So this is all 12 apostles. And you go, wait, I thought there's 11. Well, Judas gets replaced by uh, Matthias. And so there's, there's 12 of them here. And so how do we know that these are the 12? Well, it's because they use the word apostle. And so this is the very first time in your Bible that it begins to shift and to call these men apostles. One of the first times you're going to see it in, in your Bible. And here's why that's important. Because there's two meanings for the word apostle. There's a general meaning of apostle, which is a messenger, right? Or an envoy, or someone called a sent one. That's not the word that's used here. There's a much more specific meaning, and that meaning is one who had seen the Lord and has been commissioned by the Lord to preach the gospel. And so these religious leaders, these priests and Pharisees and Sadducees, men from both of the two rabbinic schools, they bring in these apostles and look at the interaction they have starting in verse 27. It says, The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other disciples replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. And you're like, Ooh, right, that's not going to go well. That is not going to go well. Verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. I mean, can't you just feel the defiance? I mean, can't you just imagine the rage and the vitriol and the anger of these religious leaders? You know, the closest thing I can liken this to, and dads, I'm going to need your help. If you've got a son, and the first time your son bows up to you, you're like, I'm going to have to kill you. <laughs> right? I can have more kids. You know, and when I explain it to them, they'll be okay, because this is not going to go well in a home. That can't happen. And so that's a little bit about what's going on here. The tension is so thick right here. It's so thick that they want to kill him, which would really be sort of the way of the school of Shammai. But look at verse 34. A, a Pharisee named Gamaliel is going to stand up and speak. And you're going to see fairly quickly that he is not from the violent school of Shammai. He's a little bit more tolerant as he is from the school of Hillel. Verse 34 says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. What he's saying is fighting against God is never going to work. That's a free tip for you, by the way, in your life. Fighting against God is never going to work. Spoken as the guy for eight years who said, I'm not going into ministry. I'm not going into ministry. I will not go into ministry. Yeah, that didn't work. And so, because you're fighting against God. That's, there's only one winner, and it's never you. And so what they're saying here is, hey, let's just be patient. Let's just sort of let it play out and see what happens. That's the school of Hillel. And so these words, they sound good, and they sound prudent, and they, 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 they sound patient on the surface, but there's more here than meets the eye. This guy named Gamaliel has a disciple named Saul. And this disciple of his was a little bit younger, a little bit more zealous, a little more impetuous, a little bit more passionate than Gamaliel. And though he taught the way of Hillel, he really liked Shammai. He didn't mind a good stabbing every now and then. The way of Hillel was kind of to be passive and to see what played out. But this guy Saul, he kind of liked what he was hearing from those guys over there. No, no, no. If these guys, if these disciples, if they're a problem, we should just take care of it. He was a man of great passion and of deep commitments, and Saul is going to be a problem. So look at how this whole thing ends in verse 40. It says, this is Gamaliel, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let him go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's just play this out for a second. These dudes got, 40, got 39 wax with a stick. Not 40, because that's too many in, in their custom. 39, though, apparently is okay. They hit you with a stick, or they hit you with a whip 39 times. And then they leave that place going, praise, said no one ever. Nobody gets beat with a stick and whipped and then walks out praising. And then when they go back home, it doesn't appear that they were scared at all. It says they went back to the church and just started preaching. They started going house to house to house talking to people about Jesus. And I read that and I thought, that's crazy. That's crazy. And while all of that is happening, in the background, watching it all, is a young man by the name of Saul. And his blood is starting to boil. How are these lowly, uneducated men allowed to stand against the council? How were they allowed to stand against the authority of God, 
the law of God. How is it possible that they can defy what we directly told them to do? In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we see the final straw for Saul. In verse 7 it says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So not only did these guys not stop, they were converting the priests. And Saul's like, that's it. That's it. That's all it took. Because you'll see, you'll see just after that in verse 7 that there is a believer named Stephen who's arrested. And according to verse 12, it says that these religious leaders go out and they sort of stir up the crowd. They get everybody all fired up. And it says the elders and the scribes, they came and they dragged Stephen away and they brought him now before the council. And Stephen's going to give his defense in Acts 7, 51 to 53. And really to no one's surprise, his defense does not go over well. They don't necessarily like it. And so Stephen becomes the very first person killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. He becomes the very first Christian martyr. In fact, verse 54 says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, when they heard Stephen's defense, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, and this, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. Okay, tell me they're not doing this. La, 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 because that's exactly what they're doing. They covered their ears. They're yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. They threw rocks at him until he was dead. And then it says, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this young man named Saul, whose mentor is Gamaliel, who is from the passive school of Hillel, this young man, in a sense, goes outside of his education. He goes outside of his training. He goes outside of the teachings from his school. He goes against the wisdom of his mentor, and he says, no, this needs to stop, and I'm the guy to stop it. And so Saul is the instigator behind Stephen's death. The crazy thing is, it's only going to get worse if you flip to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going, just like the apostles, by the way, from house to house the house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Can't you just feel the rage inside of him? You know, some of us are annoyed when the Jehovah Witnesses come to our door. This is buck wild. The apostles are walking down the street, knocking on doors, and people are coming to Christ. Saul's figuring out where they are and coming right behind them going house to house to house. And if you have given your life to Christ, he drags you out in the street and kills you. 
He'll kill your kids. He'll kill anyone who accepts Christ. Something needs to be done, and I'm the guy to do it. We're going to stop this once and for all. So if you flip to Acts chapter 9 now, you're going to see he's going to take it another step further. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So what he does is he goes to the chief priest and says, give me letters to go across state lines, basically, and to go to this other city which has multiple synagogues, and I'm going to move through their synagogues, and anyone in that synagogue says, yeah, Joe came to faith in Christ, Sally came to faith in Christ, I can go grab them and rip them from their homes and either kill them in the streets, or I'm going to throw them into a dungeon and haul them back to Jerusalem for trial. I'm going to snuff this out right now. Hey, religious leadership, give me papers so that I can go and arrest and kill. I'm your guy. I'm going to stop this right now. And so now comes verse 3, though. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You ever had a panic attack? You ever had an anxiety moment? I'm, I'm thinking this is where Saul's like, ooh. Right? Because what do you do when that happens? Verse 6. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And I thought, how humbling a moment must that have been. All the leaders, all the religious leaders in Damascus know he's coming. He's brilliant theologian, young, passionate, zealous, an influential leader. He even is known as um, ahead of all of his contemporaries. And he's coming now to Damascus, to our city. And now he's being led in with a guy holding his hand. He's doing this. How humbling must that have been? Verse 9, it says that for three days and he doesn't eat. Saul doesn't eat or drink. He's processing all this. He's trying to figure it out. It says there was a disciple there in Damascus by the name of Ananias. And the Lord said to Ananias, go talk to Saul. And I'm summarizing a bit for time. Ananias goes, no, (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) That dude's crazy. He's going to kill me. I'm not doing it. And the Lord says, I know he's crazy, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, but you stop comparing yourself to others. You go. So Ananias goes, and he prays for Saul that he might regain his sight. I wonder how fast that prayer was. Ananias walks in, pray for sight, 
right? You know, like, because I'm not hanging around that guy. If he's got paper, it's like a drive-by prayer or something. I, I wonder how long he stayed there, because as soon as he prays for him, it says that Saul is healed. And so he eats some food, he stays there for several days, and Saul begins immediately, according to verse 20, to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues in Damascus, saying that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you're Jewish and you're in church that day, what do you think's going on? You know, you're sitting in church and all of a sudden, here comes Saul, and you're like, okay. And he starts telling you that Jesus is the Son of God. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I've heard about the Son of God, and I've heard about you. Um, what's going on? What's happening? None of this matches up. Verse 21 says, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving, not suggesting, by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what do you do with Saul now? Like if you're the Jewish leaders, what do you do with Saul? The same thing you do to everybody. You kill him. Right? That's their answer to everything. If we don't like you, kill you. That's verse 23. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But Saul's followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. As Saul is being lowered off that wall, what's he thinking? What? has my life come to? Wow, what a different world I live in now. He was celebrated everywhere he went. He was the up and coming guy. He's the next Billy Graham, or maybe the first Billy Graham, I don't know, however you want to turn He's got a lot of potential, and now he's being lowered out of windows and, and, and down in baskets so he doesn't get killed. Oh, how things have changed in Saul's life. And to be honest, this is confusing for everyone, isn't it? Because the Christians are looking at him going, I don't trust you as far as I can throw you. I'm not getting anywhere near you. I hear what you're saying, but I've, I've seen all the things you've done. I'm not hanging out with you. But the Jewish people and their leadership is going, what are you doing? We saw who you were, but now we see what you're doing now. And so you've, you've turned your back on us? We know you killed Stephen. They know you killed Stephen. And so nobody quite knows what to do with Saul. And so according to the book of Galatian, uh, Galatians, um, Saul heads out into the desert in Arabia for three years to read his Bible. And he reads his Bible because he is a good Jewish boy. He wasn't kicked out of school like the disciples were because the disciples were kicked out by age six, he made it all the way. He, he's, he's the best of the best. And he's like, how did I miss it? How could I possibly not have connected the dots? What went wrong? Somehow, I missed Jesus on every page. And so after three years, Saul goes back to Jerusalem 
And when he rolls into town, the disciples don't believe him. He rolls in like, yeah, I can't get behind this. This has got to be a trick. This has got to be a hoax. You're just trying to infiltrate us and then find where we all are and kill us. But there's a dude in Jerusalem by the name of Barnabas who believes Saul. And he not just believes Saul, he believes in Saul. And those are two different things. Because all of us need a Barnabas, don't we? There are times when we've messed up. I need someone to believe me, and I need someone to believe in me. That's Barnabas. That's who this guy is. And so he affirms Saul to Saul, and he affirms Saul before the disciples. He says, this guy's legit, but to the Christians, Saul, he is just too much for us. I don't know if we can trust him. We can't get our minds around this concept. And so what happens is Saul leaves Jerusalem. He goes back to his hometown of Tarsus and joins a small little local church and begins to pastor there. Out in the middle of nowhere, just doing his thing. And so while, while Saul is off the board, the church continues to grow. The gospel continues to move, but it doesn't move anywhere as fast as it's moving through a city called Antioch. In Antioch, things are getting buck wild. Like everybody's coming to Christ. There are Jewish people, they grew up Jewish, they're coming. You've got pagan people, you've got temple prostitutes, they're dropping all that, they're coming to Christ. You've got people who grew up with no religious background, they're coming. And word is getting back to Jerusalem that things are crazy up in Antioch. And so they're like, we got to figure out what's going on over there. And so who do they send? They send Barnabas. Barnabas rolls into town. He looks around and begins to see what's happening. And when he gets there, he finds, he finds a whole bunch of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians who need to be taught. They've come to faith in Christ. And so who do I know? That is a great teacher and could teach these folks. I got it. Saul, he's just up the road. And so remember, Barnabas is an encourager. In fact, his name, Barnabas, means son of encouragement. That's what his name means. I thought that's a lot of pressure when you're a baby, isn't it? <laughs> to live up to that name, but that's his name, son of encouragement. And so he runs up the freeway to, to Tarsus and he grabs Saul and says, I need you to be who you are. I need you to be exactly who God created you to be. I'm not a teacher, Saul. You are. And so the two of them, the church in Tarsus, allows Saul to leave he goes with Barnabas, they head over to Antioch, and they spend a year there together with the book Experiencing God. No, you know what they used? Their Bible. They just opened their Bible and they read their Bible together, together every single day. They began to make disciples. And as they make disciples, that spreads like wildfire within the church in Antioch, and the church in Antioch becomes a sending church. Their DNA is, hey, this gospel thing's pretty cool, and it's pretty life-changing. We've got to get this message around the globe. This isn't just for us. This is for everybody. So in a, the most 
unselfish act ever, they send off Barnabas and Saul to begin to go on missionary journeys to talk to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They just start going out and getting it done. And Barnabas and Saul, it stays that way by the way, they're always referred to as Barnabas and Saul all the way until Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, they run into a fake magician and a false prophet, and this incredible experience happens, and from that point on, they're forever called Paul and Barnabas. It's in that moment, it goes from Barnabas and Saul, to now it's Paul and Barnabas. I thought, interesting. Interesting. It's now no longer Barnabas is first, someone else is taking center stage, and so People tend to go, well, Kevin, is it Saul or Paul? And I'd say, think of it this way. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Latin name. So it's sort of like if you know someone named Robert. So a bunch of our people here that we just got back from Costa Rica on a mission trip. If you know someone named uh, Robert here, but when you go to Costa Rica, their name is Roberto, which is different. And so his name depends on the cultural context. And so what's happening is, as Paul takes center stage now, he's not known by his Hebrew name, Saul, disciple of Gamaliel, from the rabbinic school of Hillel, murderer of Christians. No, he's now known as Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, servant to the Savior of the world, everything, including his name, has now changed. And so some of you now are like, Kevin, this is the longest series opening I've ever heard in my life. Why the biographical history lesson? Because knowing the author will help you understand this letter in a much more profound way. What gives him the right to give us Right here at Faith Covenant Church, what gives him the right to give us house rules? Like, isn't he just some dude? First Timothy 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. That's why he gets to give us house rules. That's who he is. But that's not all. If you think about Paul, he has a lot of advantages, doesn't he? I mean, he has a tremendous religious heritage. He's got the best education. He's got a remarkable cultural background. He had the conversion story that everybody wants, but no one really wants to experience, right? You know, it's sort of like today. Everybody wants to, dude, I was drinking and burning people and shooting people. Then I came to Jesus. But nobody wants the baggage that comes with that story. Because we say things like, well, I came to Christ at 7 at VBS. Like, we're ashamed of that, you know? He's got this incredible, miraculous conversion story. He has zeal, motivation, youth. He's got passion. If there is such a thing as a religious teacher's pet, I don't know if there's a thing, it's him. He's the teacher's pet. Paul says of himself that he's moving up faster than anybody else in the Jewish world. He even says things in Philippians like, hey, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I got it. 
As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. I'm getting it done. As to righteousness in the law, I'm found blameless. Ever said that? Ever read the Old Testament and said, yep, did it all. Something Kevin never said, by the way. I've never said, yep, found blameless according to the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. This is who Paul was, and yet all of the benefits of his story, all of the positives of his life, all of the things that have gone well in his story, listen to how he categorizes them in the rest of Philippians. Philippians 3, 7, Paul writes, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider all that stuff garbage. We talked about this last week. Garbage. That I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Here's the point, ready? Once Paul trusted in Jesus, he never allowed the positive things or the negative things in his life to be viewed or lived out like they were the ultimate thing. Once he trusted Jesus Christ, the gospel was supreme in his life. It covered and was greater than all of his successes. And it covered and was greater than his most shameful failures. And the question this morning is, can you say the same thing? Can you say the same thing? Can you take those things in your life which have been really good things, and say, yeah, but they're nowhere near as important to me as Christ. I mean, those are cool and all, but let me tell you the best thing in my life, which is Christ. And can you say that in a culture that attaches my success and my influence to the number of followers, likes, and retweets I get? In a culture that likes you one moment and cancels you the next. In a culture that attaches your identity and your acceptance to anything and everything other than Christ. In your life, your work, your kids, your marriage, your, your fame, your whatever, are those things all subservient to the gospel where the most important thing about us is not how good my social media feeds look, how gifted I am, or my sexuality, or how important my job is, or my marital status, but our Christ. Are all of those things rubbish compared to Christ? The second thing this morning, I, I think this has for us in this story, is Paul allowed his story to be reprioritized by the gospel. Because for a whole lot of years, Paul did life apart from God, apart from trust in the gospel. And in fact, what you're going to see in the book of 1 Timothy, it, for some of you it might be offensive, but the whole thing's going to offend you, so I'm sorry now for the whole series. He wears a label. He says, he calls himself blasphemer. That's what he calls himself, blasphemer. He calls himself persecutor. 
He calls himself violent aggressor. He calls himself murderer. This man is an instigator of murder towards countless Christians in the name of his passion. This man is going to call himself the foremost of all sinners. Like there's JV sinners and then there's varsity sinners and he's a pro athlete at it. Like this man is going to refer to himself as the least of all saints and the chief of all sinners. He coaches the national Olympic team for sinning. That's what he's going to call himself. This man had a past, and yet when he trusted Christ, his past is made new in the gospel. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5, that you are no longer defined by the negative things in your story. Some of you, that's the only thing you need to write down in this whole series, maybe. You need to know that you are no longer defined by the negative things in your, the shameful things in your story, the guilt-ridden things in your story. You are no longer defined by that. That's not who we are. And so here's Paul with these big mamma bolt cutters, and he just broke the chains that enslave us to guilt and enslave us to, to shame, and he sets us free in Christ. And so I wonder for us as we start this series, what might you need to be freed from before we start? Something prideful? Something shameful? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ frees you from both. And so when you look at 1 Timothy 1, and it says Paul... We now know what Paul is called by God to teach. He's called to teach the gospel according to the commandment of God. And just so you know, this isn't a career for Paul. It's not like he said, you know what? They've got a really good health plan and a pretty good 401k. I'm going to make that my career. That's not what he said at all. That's not why he did what he did. He did what he did because God called him to it and God commanded him to do it. And he wants to make sure that the church in Ephesus, where Timothy is leading, and the church in St. Petersburg, where we are leading, he wants to know, do we understand the gospel do we understand the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the house rules that are needed to have a church that is vibrant and life-giving and eats popsicles and lights off fireworks and is joyful, a church that is a beacon of hope and peace and joy in the city, a church that stands against the prevailing forces of culture, a church that takes seriously the calling to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, a church that is not afraid of countercultural house rules. 